All right, awesome. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you, kids. And thanks to our volunteers for hanging with our kids and youth today. All right. Well, good morning again. Sorry, we had a kind of a rocky start with technology, but I think we're all up and going. And thanks to Jason, who was our hero, um, bringing over another computer. I think we're all good. Um, like Jeannie said, of course, it's Labor Day weekend. So I know a lot of folks are out of town, but I am so grateful that each of you is here with us this morning. Um, and especially if you're uh, here for the first time or visiting from somewhere out of town, we just so welcome you. So grateful you're with us. So this morning, we're coming to the end of our summer series, which I've been calling Recovering the Sacred. And in this series, we are wrapping up uh, this look at this part of the Bible, telling the story of the Jewish community rebuilding after the exile. It's a series in which we've been considering ourselves, how do we reorder our spiritual lives after we've experienced so much disorder during COVID? To get some insight into that process, we've been looking at these stories of our spiritual ancestors to see what they did and how it might be helpful for us to think about. And today we're doing things a bit differently. Okay, those of you who are with us in person can probably see just from coming in that the space is arranged a bit differently than normal. Um, and the topic of today's teaching, as Jeannie alluded to, um, is the topic that's at kind of the center of the story that we're looking at today. And it invites, I think, interactive experience. So my hope is to do a shorter teaching than usual and leave us plenty of time to experiment together in response. So as you're going to see, we have any, any issues, anything I can help with? We're good? Okay. You can see me okay? You can hear me okay? Oh, okay. Um, so as you'll see in this morning's story, the narrative that's been building through Ezra and Nehemiah comes to an end with one more big communal experience as the people finish their rebuilding work. And this communal experience centers around a group we've heard a bit about, but now in our story, they kind of take center stage. It's a group called the Levites. So before we look at the story itself, I just want to talk just briefly on who are these people? Who are the Levites? Well, the Levites were this tribe of Israel who served the community by assisting in the worship of God that took place in the temple. So the Levites, by virtue of heritage, by virtue of the family they were born into, are born into the priests to cultivate the temple space for worship in a number of ways. So that could mean helping with animals that are going to be sacrificed. It could mean serving as a guard or gatekeeper to protect the temple. And one important role that a lot of the Levites filled were artists, musicians, craftspeople who maintained the temple, who led the community in musical worship, who contributed their artistic gifts to the spiritual community. So we're going to look at the story that's featuring this group. And, and it comes from Nehemiah 12, which is pretty much almost the end of the whole kind of rebuilding arc we've been looking at at Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Okay, and so the setup in Nehemiah chapter 12 is another one of these long lists of names, which I'm going to spare you. But so there's this long list of names where Nehemiah catalogs all the families of the Levites who have returned to Jerusalem after the exile. And he starts with the beginning of the return. That's the time, um, you know, of like Zerubbabel. And then he goes all the way up to where he is, which is almost a century later. And after going through this long list, of the various clans of Levites that they now have in Jerusalem, he shares this story. Picking up at verse 27, I will read it. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all the places they lived. Bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication joyfully with songs of thanksgiving and songs accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. So I'll remind us, they have rebuilt the walls. That was kind of the last big rebuilding project. They, first they rebuilt the temple and then eventually they've restored all the walls of Jerusalem. So now their city can like fully feel secure. And now they're gonna dedicate those walls. That's what's happening. Going on, the singers were also assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the settlement of the Nedophites and Beth Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth for the singers had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. And when the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I, this is Nehemiah speaking, I, Nehemiah, who's like the governor, brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall southward toward the Dung Gate, Going after them was Hoshia, half the leaders of Judah, Azariah, and again, there's a long list of names I will skip, going to the end of it. Ezra the scribe led them. They went over the fountain gate and continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall. And they passed the house of David and continued on to the water gate toward the east. The second choir was proceeding in the opposite direction. I, Nehemiah, followed them along with half the people on top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the Ephraim gate, the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate and the gate of the God. And then two choirs that gave thanks, took their stations in the temple of God. And I did also, along with half the officials with me and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, again, another long list of names, the end of the priest's names, we get to the choir sang loudly under the direction of Jezriah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. So this story is wrapping up the story of rebuilding that is told in Ezra and Nehemiah. And this rebuilding story concludes with a description of this big worship celebration. And the picture is like a lot of people, <laughs> a lot more than what we've got going on here, a lot of people gathering to celebrate and, to do, and doing so with a huge musical procession. Two parades essentially circle the city, okay? That's how they're dedicating the walls is they're kind of half Half of the group is walking on one side of the walls that go around the city and half is on the other. And each of these is led by a choir 
processing around the walls that they've just finished rebuilding. And eventually these two choirs after encircling all of Jerusalem come together and they meet at the temple for the climactic musical extravaganza. And after the extravaganza, if we kept reading, we would see Nehemiah describe the way that the community then set things up for the worship life to be maintained with a robust community of Levites being cultivated in Jerusalem. And then that group is even being financially supported through the giving of the broader community, demonstrating what a high value the rebuilt community in Jerusalem was putting on their worship practice, okay? So the singers, all the choir members are supported as Levites by the tithes and offerings of the greater community, okay? They're naming, this is something that's a high value. So we have the centerpiece of this climax of the rebuilding narrative be this big worship service, the celebration of those who gave themselves to communal worship. And this is the heart of what restoration seemed to look like for the former exiles after they returned to Israel, after they rebuilt their community. It was like they were naming the people can now worship again, and that is the big deal. And I think that's fitting, a fitting place for us to end this series with our own chance to reflect on this practice that Jeannie's been naming, that we've been mentioning that is in this story, this practice of worship. As we seek to recover the sacred, as we've been doing in this series, to reorder our lives of faith after all the disruption we've been through in the last couple years. What role might worship play in that? What role are we called into? What role do we want to claim? Obviously, it's not going to look the same as those ancients in Israel. But what do we want it to look like? I want to offer just a few ideas inspired by our own story and, and also my own experience connecting to the divine through worship, which if you, if you, if you don't know me, you might, you might not know that worship is something that's kind of a core part of, of who I am. And so I do, I do care about it. So the first thing, the first insight I just want to name is that worship isn't simply a performance. It's intended to be the means by which we connect with the divine. It's not intended to be a performance. It's intended to be the means by which we connect with the divine. So worship should not just be another name for music. Although I would say in communities like ours, sometimes that's the case. That's how people think of it. But worship ultimately, like uh, Jeannie was pointing to, is the practice of recognizing God as God and engaging with that God relationally. It's the act of moving from talking about God to talking to God. At Haven, sometimes when we talk about being a centered set community, we say we don't define our collective by this set of like black and white shared life experiences, what some might call being bounded set. Everyone, everyone's female or everyone's of the same race or everyone comes from the same geographic location. That's not how we define community. Rather, our community recognizes that all of us are people journeying 
through life, we're all going somewhere. And the life of faith is about being invited to orient that journey ultimately toward the divine. We think about our community as a place that strives to cultivate safety for a diverse group of people longing to be drawn towards a shared center point, a center point that many of us name as Jesus. I think it's helpful to keep this centered set framework in mind when thinking about this idea of worship, because worship is essentially a relational activity. So if our aim in life, in the life of faith, is to orient ourselves around Jesus or the creator, the spirit, however you want to name it, and move forward in following them, then I believe worship is the opportunity to actually recalibrate and re-engage that center point. Worship is ultimately the act of ascribing worth to the divine. And as we do so, recognizing our own worth is affirmed in our connection to the divine. We are actively remembering God is the end toward which we are moving. And it's not just a one-way story. And so the connection is reciprocal. We express our gratitude, wonder, devotion to God, and we also receive back from the divine. This is the heart of what I believe Christians understand to be the Holy Spirit. God being present, giving, speaking to us. So we see a bit of that in the story. The Levites are filled with joy. And Nehemiah says that comes from God. And that brings me to my second observation, that worship isn't simply uh, it's, it's all, it, in addition to not simply being a performance, a, a means of connection, it means that it has to be participatory. It brings the most connection when you actively engage. So there's this other story of an ancient worship festival in the Hebrew Bible. It's a story of King David, one whom tradition called the man after God's own heart. And he brings this holy artifact that was believed to represent God's presence on earth the Ark of the Covenant. He brings it into the capital city he's established of Jerusalem. And King David brought this Ark of the Covenant to his capital city with another big fanfare of praise. And the story goes that he like really got into it. He was singing, he was leaping, he was dancing in the streets. His wife, McCall, not so into it. She's rather sitting on the sidelines, being pretty critical. She thinks he's making a fool of himself, dancing around like a common Levite, perhaps even flashing some folks as he does. The way the story goes, David is the one who's in the right. McCall suffers for her judgmental critique. The story is clearly intended to call people to get off the sidelines and be the ones jumping in fully, even if they might look a little foolish doing it. Now, I'm aware the different ones of us in a diverse community like Haven might perceive of the divine or God or ultimate reality in different ways. Perhaps you're not totally sold on Yahweh of the Bible that we're talking about in this story or Jesus as the revelation of God. But maybe you sense that there is something beyond the here and now of the material world and that's something 
It's why you're taking the time to come to a spiritual community and engage in it on a regular basis at all. That is why you're here this morning. This call to active participation in some way is for all of us, wherever we're at. Ultimately, if we're not able to move forward, even in our skepticism and actually participate, if we can't move from watching and theorizing to engaging and practicing, then we can't really experience the benefits of connecting with that bigger reality. You could say it this way, if we're not willing to actively reach out, how will we ever know if there's something there to grab onto? Now, worship can come in a lot of forms, as Jeannie pointed to. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it throughout history, through tradition. Those can include various forms of artistic expression, writing, drawing, crafting. It can include iconography. This is especially true in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, looking at art and meditating upon it as a way of helping us connect with the one who we cannot see or fully comprehend with our senses. It can include remembrance, naming the things God has done in the past as a way to track God's connection with us and cultivate our own gratitude and wonder at that as well as our own hope for the future. It can include prayer, and intercession, lifting our concerns and needs to the divine, naming where we need help, naming the challenges of our day, asking for the divine to be present with us in our challenges and bring healing and transformation. It also often includes generosity, giving of our own resources to provide for those with need or those who are caring for the community of faith, just as that community in Israel gave a portion of their resources that helped care for those Levites. And of course, one of the most universal and consistent practices of worship we see through the ages and in many different contexts involves the unique practice of communal singing. I do not have time to get into all the unique benefits of singing together, both on our physical and our psychological health, as well as our relationship relational connection to the people we sing with. But trust me, there are a lot of benefits. Since before the days of David and Nehemiah, down through the ages, singing together has played a vital role in entering spiritual community and embodying connection together to the divine. One place this connection's been particularly potent has been in the development of music in the Black church tradition, where worship has served as a source of liberation. Black Catholic sister Taya Bowman describes the sacred songs of their tradition this way. The music comes from a people who share and claim a common history, common experience, common oppression, common values, hopes, dreams, and visions. Sharing that history, those values, those hopes and visions unifies the community as they move toward that common center together. The practicing worship together forms faith in us in helpful ways. When we sing those songs of whatever community you are a part of, when we repeat those rituals, when we make space to pray together, when we learn together tools and words and we now have them in us so they can sustain us when we're apart. 
And that's not just true of us here at Haven. That was clearly true of Jesus himself. Do you know what book Jesus quoted from the Hebrew Bible more than any other? It was the book of Psalms. That was essentially the worship songbook of Jesus's day. And it makes sense when you think about it. Remember from our conversation a month or so ago on sacred texts, this isn't a time when people had their own copies of the Bible to carry around, right? You knew scripture because as a community in the synagogue, you heard it read, you discussed it, you talked about it, you learned portions of it by memory. And the parts of it you knew the most, the parts that were easiest to retain and to call upon when you needed it were the songs. Because the songs weren't just words. They, they had melody, they had harmony, they had rhythm and cadence and repetition and poetry. And so you studied the Psalms, you sang them together. They weren't just these old poems you read out of context. They were the songs of worship you sang in the community. And that worship in song shaped your understanding of faith. It gave you imagery to draw upon. It provided the foundation for you to consider and talk about who God is and what God is doing in the world. Now I wanna also name, for some of us who may have grown up in religious communities, we may have had experiences in which the thing also were harmful. Perhaps we were really harmed by our communities of origin. And so the kinesthetic nature of worship in which memory can just be activated, right? In a powerful way that can hit us really hard. It can mean we can hear a song and be transported. And some place, times the places we're transported are, aren't good. And I want to name with sensitivity the, and affirm sometimes the right response when we are recognizing we're being triggered and our trauma is being activated is to withdraw. Sometimes that is the right response. And we name, want to name the, the need to practice self-care and self-awareness. But at the same time, I believe there's an invitation as we reorder to believe that we, that there is healing, that there is something real and powerful about moving through. That we want to, as a community, find a way to reclaim that capacity to worship, to not be uh, forever distanced from the divine because of the harm from our past. And so even as we've talked about before, including and transcending, we want to include ways that we can deeply connect with the God who loves us, even as we leave behind some of the damaging messages we may have received in the past. Amen? I'm going to grab my notes real quick. Finally, I just want to name one more because I think all of that is ultimately rooted in and helps foster deep joy. While there are a number of emotions that are expressed in worship, and we see that in our, in our psalm book, prayers of both thanksgiving and lament, the ultimate impact of connecting with the divine, of participating together, of practicing and being formed collectively is that we experience the joy of union with God and one another. It's not just a happy high. This is the deep abiding joy 
joy of knowing we belong in love. For those of you who've been following throughout the series, you might recognize that this story kind of bookends the greater narrative of rebuilding. Remember the first story we looked at at the beginning encounter where they were dedicating the foundations of the temple right as the rebuilding was beginning. And in that story too, there was a great sound that could be heard from miles away. But it was a mix of emotion. Some people were weeping, some were celebrating, all of the sound blended together. Now in this story, once again, we have this raucous sound being made, but it's no longer a mix of deep feeling. All of it is joy. All of it is joy. Perhaps this might serve us as a reminder to us that though we will go through seasons of mixed emotions, of laments, alongside praises, the overall direction we are headed in as people in connection with a God who loves us is moving towards joy completely. Joy alone. This movement we take following the footsteps of our spiritual ancestors, many of whom have lived through tragedy and oppression and yet affirmed the hope in worship that the suffering they experienced would not have the last word. When we worship, we enact the hope that our weeping will turn to dancing. That is the hope of union with the divine. That's what we practice each time we gather. That's what we're here to engage together. And that sincerely, I believe, is how we recover the sacred. May it be among us. Amen.